Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Jay's Analysis back with another interview. Two in one day. This time I have writer, researcher, author. I guess you're a, if you're an author, you're a writer. Uh, activist, investigative journalist, Brandon Turbeville. How are you doing? Hey, Jay. I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Uh, you know, I, I have come across your stuff over the years, um, you know, reading through alternative media. Um, and you know, the, the name stuck with me It's kind of an interesting last name there. And, uh, when, uh, a mutual friend said, Hey, you should get this guy on. Uh, I thought, Hey, yeah, this, uh, this is, uh, this is a name I recognize. I've read a lot of his stuff. He's a good writer. You've written several books. Uh, why don't you, if you would go ahead and just give us a brief intro about you. Uh, I know that's, uh, boring interview stuff, but, but, uh, we, you're going to have, uh, listeners, who may not be familiar with you. So just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, I've got this, uh, six books out, and the, the latest was The Road to Damascus, The Anglo-American Assault on Syria. And that's a book, it's about 500 pages worth of information regarding the Syrian situation, the crisis, the nature of the crisis, who was behind it, who are the players in it, and um, and sort of the lead up. It's, it's a couple years old now, but if you really want to understand what happened from the beginning, I would recommend picking that book up. I'm also a writer for activistpost.com and theantimedia.org, as well as Irrelevant Paradigm and Natural Blaze. And I have my own website, which is brandonturbeville.com, which is sort of the hub of all of my work there. I post all of the articles and all of the YouTube videos, all the interviews, and uh, the books are located there. So if you want to purchase those, you can click on the Books tab and find those in the bookstore. And, uh, you know, lastly, I have uh, my own radio show one that, that, that comes on Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time called Truth on the Tracks over at UCY.TV, which is sort of a weekly news roundup and analysis, and occasionally I'll have a guest on there as well. So, uh, the, you know, again, Monday night, and it's rebroadcast on Friday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So I've been doing this uh, for a couple of years now with, with the articles and the books, and, you know, here we are. Yeah, I caught your uh, interview with Syrian Girl. That was a lot of uh, uh, that was that was a great interview. You got into some uh, 
some really interesting geopolitical issues. Um, I have uh, some friends that that uh, are really really into the uh, Russia situation and how Syria ties in and all that. So um, we're definitely Jason also is familiar with this topic. But you know, this is something that you've you know really been focusing on. You had you set up book a couple years ago. That was that's pretty prescient there. What uh, what keyed you into looking at Syria? Well, I was, you know, I, I had the opportunity to see Syria from the very beginning, right, toward the end of uh, the Libyan catastrophe when Gaddafi was overthrown and killed. We saw the beginnings of what was called the Arab Spring in Syria. Uh, the Arab Spring, of course, was presented to people as, it, as if it were some kind of organic protest movement of peaceful, democracy-loving freedom fighters and students and hippies and pot and all that kind of stuff. Right. And it wasn't. Uh, what it was was a collection of Western-backed death squads who sat on rooftops and fired sniper, uh, sniper bullets into the crowd of innocent people. For instance, they shot men, women, children. They shot women on the way to the market, uh, men on the way to work, kids on the way to school. It was just random slaughter. And it started in Homs. Uh, that was the area where this, this stuff really started taking off. And again, while all of this was happening, the Western media was being told that these people were flower children wanting to get rid of a brutal dictator. Not the case. And of course, it just only it, it expanded after that as it, as it started happening in other major cities and Damascus and Aleppo and, and other places as well. And it soon became apparent that it was a full-on uh, march of, of armed, organized forces. And from the very beginning, as I said, this was funded by the United States and NATO via Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Jordan, and right. facilitated by Turkey mm -hmm. and, and these, these countries. So that's what this was. And it, as I said, it developed early on with sporadic gunfire and very quickly turned into an armed, coordinated rebellion. Or not, well, actually, you know what? I'll take that back. I don't want to call it a rebellion. I don't want to get trapped into using the same terms that the media uses. You can't really rebel against something that you don't live under. Most of these people weren't Syrian. They still aren't. Uh, the, the overwhelming majority of them were either Saudis or Libyans. And I think now Tunisians make up the biggest uh, number of fighters in Syria now. Right. So, uh, what? That's what this was, and you could also see early on that not only were they just uh, was it an open armed insurrection or an invasion, that it was not a simply uh, just combat between freedom fighters and revolutionaries and government troops. Right? These people were fanatics. They uh, they hacked people to death. They beheaded people in the streets. They imposed uh, brutal Sharia law onto the people that they uh, you know the neighborhoods that they took over and the areas that they they conquered. And it became very clear early on that whatever you thought of these revolutionaries, whatever you thought of Assad, they were much, much worse than Assad. Yeah, I recall um, all those all those headlines at the time, and it, and it, it came out you know pretty quick. Even um, you know the CFR had a post about uh, how it's time to support the uh, the so-called rebels in that arena, um, and then you know we, we it was all branded as rebels. Uh, and then it then it morphed into ISIS, and so then it becomes a situation where uh, there's this ridiculous, uh, you know, three-way game at, at work where Obama's talking about uh, how he won't team up with Assad to beat to beat uh, ISIS because 
ISIS and Assad are the enemy. So it's, it's completely ridiculous in the sense that, you know, it's it's an open story about Western funding for ISIS. Yeah, and I think that's one of the important things for people to understand. We have this narrative that's given to us. We have three parties in Syria, and then there's a couple sub-parties, right? You have the Assad government, which is painted as brutal dictators, you know, right. the new Hitler that was tried at one time. And then you have the moderate rebels, who are just moderates who won't, who don't want to be under ISIS or under Assad. They just, they're moderate rebels. And then you have the ISIS fundamentalists, right? And under ISIS, you have Al Nusra, you have Al Qaeda, you have, you know, Harakat Hazam, and all these groups. Mm -hmm. um, that's what's painted, uh, you know, the picture that's painted to us. But the truth is, it's uh, well, the truth is that it's not true, right? You, you have two parties in Syria, which is the Assad government, and then you have death squads and terrorists. There are no moderates in Syria. Whenever you hear moderate rebels, please know that it is a lie. Right. There is no such thing as a moderate rebel in Syria. In fact, I can even point to 2013, there was an article by Ben Hubbard in the New York Times where he was given an, you know, his analysis of the moderate rebellion, and he stated that there was not uh, in anywhere in rebel-controlled Syria was there a secular fighting force because they all imposed Sharia law. They were all responsible for a number of different atrocities. The group that's usually presented as being the moderate rebellion is the Free Syrian Army. That's the the, you know, the FSA. They're the ones that are but they're the umbrella organization. They have all these different brigades. The Free Syrian Army, early on, was well known for imposing Sharia law for beheadings. Uh, the Free Syrian Army is the one that uh, one of their brigades forced a young child to behead a Syrian soldier. They have something called burial brigades, which was a mass execution team. And, of course, we also had the Farouk Brigade, and one of the members of the Farouk Brigade was Abu Sakar. And this guy was the one who cut out the heart of the Syrian soldier and then bit into it on, uh, on camera for YouTube. So this this is the FSA. I mean, this is the a cannibal. Or are they are are they moderate cannibals? Can we call them moderate cannibals? And <laughs> right. you have open admissions from people like uh, uh, Basil Idris, who was one of the commanders of the FSA, saying openly that they work with Al Nusra and ISIS. We had um, uh, Abu Fida, who was part of the Revolutionary Council, who said the same thing that. They work with ISIS and Nusra, and we go on and on. The Syrian Revolutionary Front, which is supposed to be another moderate rebellion or moderate rebel faction, uh, Jamal Marouf, who is the leader of that, stated that his brigades work with Nusra and Al Qaeda. So they, they all work together, and they're all a part of the same organizations. Now, if people want to really look, um, really look at the history of of Al Qaeda, then they can look at uh, the, the leader of it, or the history of ISIS, and how it became ISIS, because the name keeps changing. Over the last few years, the names have changed a number of times. Um, we have, at first, for instance, I generally try to draw the parallel here. If you look at the leader of, of ISIS, which is Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, right. um, you, you can kind of look at how this, this you know, goes, goes forward. Baghdadi was an Iraqi who had joined al-Qaeda to fight against Saddam Hussein. Um, he, during the U.S. invasion, 
was, you know, kind of distinguishing himself by brutality, uh, attacking Shiites and Christians, and you know, imposing Sharia law and all the, all this type of stuff. He was actually arrested and taken to Camp Buka in 2005, and he spent three or four years there. When he came out, and of course, the only two ways you can come out of of a U.S. torture camp is by becoming a double agent or and working for the United States and the intelligence services or you come out in a body bag. So this guy came out not in a body bag, so what can we what can we surmise? You get a you get a Rolex and you get connections to British rappers too. Exactly. And, and US senators. Yep. Um, so he comes out of Camp Buka and uh, he's still a member of Al Qaeda in Iraq, right? This is it's called Al Qaeda in Iraq. And they, they changed their name from Al-Qaeda in Iraq to the Islamic Emirate of Iraq. Now, the IEI um, began fighting against the Maliki's government, of course, but um, around 2013, they have a sister organization, I should mention. The IEI sister organization uh, in Syria was called Al-Nusra. So, in other words, it's the same organization, but mm -hmm. in Syria it's called Al-Nusra. In Iraq, it's called the Islamic Emirate of Iraq. Um, around 2013, Baghdadi and some of his groups went into Syria to work with al-Nusra, and they, they sort of merged the groups, called it the Islamic Emirate of Iraq and the Levant, I-E-I-L, right? And uh, eventually, this name went from the Islamic Emirate of Iraq and the Levant to the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, ISIL, right, right. which changed to... Islamic State of Iraq and Sham, or Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, right? So ISIS, and now of course it's called IS, the Islamic State. So if you look at the, the history of the name changes, you'll see that that's all it is. It's just a name change. Mm -hmm. It's not that these groups are different. Right. Of course there are disagreements and fights at the low levels because these people are fundamentalists. It's and, a sectarian, and, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's the nature of the, the the game. If you're a fundamentalist, if you disagree with one silly tenet of, of this religious doctrine that some other guy's wearing a purple shirt on a Monday when he should be wearing it on a Wednesday afternoon, right. you have to behead him, right? So this does happen at the, the very low level. So they have fought amongst themselves a little bit, but all in all, these groups are the same thing. Right. Well, and, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you can see this um, also with the arming of of the terrorists, right? We have um, arms that the United States drops. We have TAL missiles, anti-aircraft missiles, and so forth, small arms going to uh, Harakat Hazam. And then ISIS says it's going to attack Harakat Hazam, and what do they do? They, they just walk away. Hazam just says, okay, all right, fine, we're not going to fight, we're going to walk away, and by the way, we'll leave all those weapons that the United States gave to us, and ISIS can take them over. Now, <laughs> that's a back door in, in, to, to openly just arming ISIS, and I'm not convinced that this was even the, you know, the, the way that the events even transpired, but what I'm trying to say is that the United States is using cover of arming moderate rebels in order to arm ISIS. Right. Well, let, let me ask you a question. Let's let's get a little bit uh, deeper here, and maybe maybe a little bit wider context, because um, I th I think the majority of of my listeners w will be in total agreement with you there. Um, you know about what's really going on with uh, ISIS and all that stuff, and that that reality theater. But I have a question. Since you know this is this is kind of your arena, 
you know, we have, uh, for example, Miles Copeland has a book, uh, Game of Nations, where he discusses, uh, you know, back in, in the early part of the last century, um, the CIA working with the Baptist Party and working with those governments um, in, um, you know, in Iraq and in Syria. And actually, you know, we all know that, uh, you know, Saddam had uh, CIA training. Step into the world of power, loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So the question is, how do we get from you know a CIA that's that's working with Baptist Party to you know decades later this program of moving away from that kind of uh, secular approach to these Islamic states, uh, moving away from, <clears throat> or I'm sorry, moving towards uh, um, you know the, these radical pseudo-caliphate type positions. What what took us from there to where we are now? Well, I think one of the first things is that you see the development of nationalism, the, the rejection of being a United States puppet, or I guess you could call it an Anglo-American puppet. Mm -hmm. You saw this a bit with Nasser in Egypt, where right. he, he, he started to straighten up his back, you know, and, and not uh, want to be regarded as a client state of the West. And essentially what happens is that you have to form a new policy, and you have to get these guys who want to be nationalists, whether or not they are authoritarians, that, that can kind of fall to the wayside. The idea is nationalism in terms of the, you know, the geopolitical context. If that happens, then you've got to develop a strategy to depose them and to make sure that whatever takes their place can no longer present a resistance to your authority. And that's where you have the idea of, Zbigniew Brzezinski's mm -hmm. uh, concept of micro-states and mini-states, right? So you get this, each state has to be broken up into tiny little pieces that are all based on religion or race, whatever your little thing is, it, ha it has to have a state. And, and once you do this, you have, you know, a bunch of little quabbling, impotent, you know, little, little uh, states that can't really stand up to a corporation or a bank or certainly you know NATO or the United States whenever it wants to impose its will and what better way to do that than with the fundamentalists right you you can have them overthrow a, a secular nationalist government with all its modern military means and all of its uh, you know technological advancements whatever it it has maybe it doesn't you know equal the west but still it's an advancement that can pose a pose something of a you know level of resistance you get these these uh, fundamentalist morons in there who have been pl uh, placed into power by western intelligence agencies mm -hmm. then they can't mount the resistance that an assad or a nasser for instance could uh, or or gaddafi could mount so basically we're looking at strategy of tension leading to divide and conquer 
Absolutely, and and when you look into uh, you know again the beginning of the last century, you'll also see that the, the the common enemy here, the the main target, was always nationalism, Arab nationalism, because even when the British entered the Arab world, there was you know there, obviously there was a resistance to the British, and that was part of what Lawrence of Arabia right. was uh, put in place to 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 stop. And that's why we have the Muslim Brotherhood, by the way, which was created by British intelligence. Mm -hmm. And it's still run by British intelligence and United States intelligence as well. Yeah, Al-Banah. There's also interesting uh, connections to Masonic uh, lodges and um, secrets and um, different... uh, Well, the lodges being used in connection with things like the uh, Muslim Brotherhood. yeah. Uh, what is your view of where things are going? I mean, what, I, what I'd like to, to know is we know a lot of this has to do with energy. It has to do with, uh, you know, big corporate deals. has to do with moves that Russia is making. So give me, give me some, uh, some insight on that. What, where's, it, where's it going with these uh, larger power block players? Well, it's always really difficult to predict these types of situations because on, on one hand it could go nowhere I mean this could this could stop tomorrow if people wanted it to stop right we, we could we could theoretically see a pullback and and uh, you know things go back to largely the way they were or on the other hand we could see World War three <laughs> and uh, somewhere in between you know uh, certainly we hope World War three doesn't happen but the idea is that uh, the United States and NATO and, you know, the, the sort of Anglo-American uh, apparatus there is trying to cut off the legs of Russia. It has a major bargaining chip if it were able to get a pipeline that runs up through um, uh, from Qatar, and the United States and, and NATO, by the way, is what I'm talking about, right. as um, a, a major bargaining chip if it can get a pipeline that comes up from Qatar up through uh, Jordan and then Syria and then into uh, Euro, tur- into Turkey and then into Europe, right? Because what this does is allows a NATO ally, European ally, uh, American ally, to provide oil and gas to Europe, directly to Europe. Right now, that major provider is Russia. Right. And if Russia decides to cut off the spigots, then it's going to get very cold in Europe. And... They know this. Russia knows this. And that's why Russia doesn't want them to get the pipeline and why they want to get it, uh, you know, uh, badly. And, in fact, this was a discussion early on which Assad nixed. He said, no, we're not going to allow the pipeline. And he began instead working with Iraq and Iran on a pipeline that would go through, um, through Syria there. So you also have that alliance that's being de- well had been developed between Assad and Maliki at the time, and uh, and and Iran, which is, you know, not what the Anglo-American powers want because they don't want a unified front anywhere in the Middle East. So that was another reason that uh, that Syria was targeted. This pipeline is a major part of it. Also, a reason uh, to target Syria is is just geopolitical strategy if you're going to topple Iran, right? Which is the next country on the chopping block. I guess, actually, I guess one could argue that Lebanon would be be next, but I don't think it would be as, nearly as difficult to uh, to weaken Lebanon as it would be to to go after uh, Iran or even, even Syria. So, 
the idea here is to to knock down one more stepping stone to Iran, and the ultimate goal here is Russia. Right. And this was written about in Brzezinski's own books, uh, like the Grand Chessboard, where you can we can read where he he has this uh, plan to break Russia up into at least three different countries. He mm -hmm. wants sort of a European Russia, an Asian Russia, and a Eurasian Russia, and they're all supposed to be broken up and almost a very loose confederacy. Now, no self-respecting nation would accept its own breakup into three loose confederacies, especially when Russia has traditionally been an extremely large country of about the same dimensions, right? So this is not going to be accepted by Russia, but this is the plan by people like Brzezinski, and this theory has been pushed, this ideology has been pushed, not just by Brzezinski himself, of course, but by Obama's advisors, by individuals in the Pentagon, by strategists, whether you call them neoliberals or neoconservatives, it really doesn't matter because the only the presentation and some of the methodology is different. Yeah, there was, uh, it's in Grand Chessboard, and he restates it again in uh, global, uh, Strategic Vision from uh, a couple of years ago. Um, that uh, you know, it's got to be broken up into these these uh, smaller regions that can be uh, uh, so, so that Eurasia can be a controlled uh, a controlled situation. Um, now, how how does this fit into? Is this fitting into the uh, the idea of propping up the petrodollar and the dollar economy? Is that a big part of this? So that uh, you know, Russia doesn't uh, pose any kind of uh, um, you know, economic challenge to uh, to Western domination. Yeah, I think that's part of it, and, and you know, there, there's rarely just one reason for doing this, and right. obviously the petrodollar would be one part of it. But you know, I, I don't think that's the the be all, you know, end all, be all of that um, of that strategy. I mean, again, the idea here is world hegemony, and personally, I don't think that it really is going to matter whether that world hegemony is is American or European or whatever. I think that world hegemony, personally speaking, is going to come in the form of something else, you know, sort of out of the ashes of, of the old, right. which, is, which is the methodology that's been used since, uh, well, since really recorded history, you know, destroy the old and, and build the new order out of chaos. Well, that's the phoenix from the, from the flames. Yeah, you, you've got to have uh, order out of chaos, so absolutely. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, when we mentioned this strategy, this was mentioned with uh, Anne-Marie Slaughter, who, who is a uh, State Department uh, employee or State Department worker who wrote for, I think it might have been, well, I don't want to say it was counterpunch. She wrote, and it was in mainstream media, and I've got it cited in my article. She wrote an op-ed where she talked about uh, open war in Syria, where she argued for attacking Assad not because we wanted to help the poor Syrian people that are being brutally abused by, by the dictator Assad, but because we wanted to strike at Putin. Mm -hmm. And so it was pretty open what she was saying. You know, she, she actually openly said that if in order to strike at Putin, you have to strike in Syria because he's too strong in Ukraine. So you have to hit him where he's weakest in Syria. So basically it's an open admission that Syria is not really about Assad, it's not about the Syrian people, certainly, and it's not even fully about Iran. It's about Russia, and that's you know 
that, that's a very dangerous prospect because you're talking about picking on a nation that has nuclear capabilities and the ability to deliver those nuclear weapons. Um, what? Yeah, and this ties into Ukraine too because it's a multi-pronged uh, attempt to, you know, obviously make uh, encroachments. And so what we saw with Ukraine and, and these, uh, you know, years of uh, stage color revolution nonsense ended up, uh, you know, leading to uh, uh, regime change, uh, the coup, you know, rise of uh, right-wing fascist-type uh, uh, weirdos. And so, you know, it, it, how is this game going? Who's... Who's getting the upper hand here? Is is it the Anglo establishment? Are they are they making headway? They do seem to have, you know, achieved their agenda in uh, in Libya um, and you know other other things, we, other states that we've seen in the last few years. But uh, you know, m- more recently, are, are are they are they winning, or is this uh, a, a larger chess game that uh, that Russia has foreseen? Well, you know, again, I I always tend to look at these things on a number of different levels. I mean, on one hand, you can say, yeah, the the United States, the the NATO alliance is winning, uh, or or at least they've gotten way more shots in than than Russia has gotten in, right, whether it's in Ukraine or Syria or other locations. But on another level, again, I, I personally... I personally think that this is just a major part of a chess game that is ultimately designed to end in a major war. But you know, if you if you look at uh, the you know the situation in Ukraine, for instance, we when I say we, I mean NATO has you know deposed Yanukovych and, mm-hmm. and put in place this uh, right wing fascist government with, mm-hmm. with literal neo Nazis in it, and they are now they've pushed over a lot of territory that was held by, you know, rebels that were Russian backed. I mean, let's not let's not kid ourselves. I mean, Russia is backing the rebels. That ought to be clear enough to anybody mm-hmm. whether they deny it or not. And, you know, the um the, the rebels at this point have maintained a significant amount of of territory, particularly in Donetsk and Lugansk and uh and and some of those areas that border Russia. And it appears that uh, there is shaping up to be some type of major battle in the eastern part of Ukraine, which Russia itself is preparing for. Um, with with the attack on Syria and with the weakening of Ukraine, possibly even pushing NATO forward even more. I mean, remember the, when, when NATO was formed, it wasn't even supposed to go to uh, past East Germany. Right. Now it's right on the borders of of. Russia. It's literally right on the borders of Russia. So if Ukraine were to join, which it is trying to do, then you're talking about, you know, essentially in, you know, encapsulating Russia with U.S. military bases and NATO military bases. Um, is This is probably a more dangerous location even than Syria in terms of, of what could happen if, if something goes wrong, if something goes live, you know, if if Polish troops enter Ukraine to keep the peace and Polish troops are fired on, they blame it on the Russians, and then suddenly you've got uh, NATO bound to defend the Polish troops. You know, that's just one scenario. So this is its not a good situation. It's, it's a powder keg, and it's one that could have been completely avoided by not meddling in other people's affairs. Um, and all of that, of course, was 
in order to enforce the uh, the austerity policies of the IMF. Right. Yanukovych didn't want to sign on to the IMF austerity policies, and he took a loan from Russia. And immediately he was deposed with this Euromaidan color revolution scheme. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, what, what happens when uh, Yatsenyuk takes power in, in, in the uh, fascist Rada? He, he immediately declares that they will accept money from the IMF and impose the austerity measures. So, you know, that's... that's yeah, that's same plan over and over and over. The IMF did the same thing to Russia, uh, you know, back in the, in, the, in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, it's a constant process of going in and, and you know, building up, you know, government and public uh, facilities that, uh, with, with the labor of the, of the working class and with the money of the middle. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And working class and then at the last minute coming in and and shearing everything and, and taking uh, you know all the natural resources for yourself and taking what little that the working middle classes own for themselves and and uh, buying it up and then there's the process of course it, uh, of selling off bits and pieces of it to the working and middle classes again and then buying it right back after you destroy the economy and and uh, it's the same it's the same parasitical cycle and and it's it's the banker's plan that uh, Stiglitz talked about, um, that uh, Greg Palast, you know, wrote about the the uh, IMF shock doctrine plan, where you where you, um, you you've got to have these coups and these revolutions to destabilize not just the uh, social climate but also the the, the economic uh, climate, and then you know then the, then the IMF comes in and says, oh, we'll rescue you, and uh, then there's a fire sale where everything's bought up for pennies on the dollar. And we saw the same thing in Greece, right? I mean, this, this is this, uh, you know, I think back to when, um, you know, when there was the uh, color revolution, or the, sorry, the Arab Spring in Egypt, and Kissinger said, this is act one of a play. Yeah, and he was exactly right. <laughs> and and he here we are, right, here we are, what, four years later, and uh, we've seen, uh, you know, we're on to act two, three, four, five, right? Yeah, and, and it's funny you bring up Egypt when we were talking about, uh, you know, Nasserism and, and nationalism. Mm -hmm. That's where it kind of started, Arab nationalism. And this is apparently what is uh, developing more so with um, General Sisi and, the, you know, the, the, the Egyptian government that's in charge now after Morsi was deposed. I was a little alarmed at not only the mainstream media coverage, which, you know, you're always going to be alarmed at that, but the even alternative news media was covering the situation in Egypt as if it were the most you know the horrible travesty of justice that Morsi 
was deposed. <laughs> well, uh, you know, the truth is Morsi was about to commit, he was about to commit the Egyptian army to war with Ethiopia and Syria, right? This was a Muslim Brotherhood puppet, so you can read Muslim Brotherhood, you can read British and American intelligence. Mm -hmm. The guy imposed massive austerity on the Egyptian people. That's not what they were promised when he was voted in. And, uh, you know, he was, he was rewriting the Egyptian constitution to take what little rights they had in Egypt away and move toward a you know type of fundamentalist government, which they didn't want. The the military stepped in again, so it's it's uh, Egypt is much better off with Morsi gone and their you know military uh, junta, military based government in there now uh, than than it was when when Morsi was in in, in power. And uh, you know certainly it's not the ideal, but it's better than the alternative. Yeah, I mean, at what point you know you would think. Uh you know, you'd, you'd think that it would become evident that the same patterns seem to keep happening. But, you know, it's kind of like Brzezinski said elsewhere, you know, the, the public will eventually not even remember what was in the news two weeks ago. And so, you know, I, when you when you first get into the awakening and all that kind of stuff and you have your, your awakening to conspiracy and then larger geopolitical movements, you, you, you get into, you know, news and the news cycle and, and reading the news but then at a certain point you start realizing that well even maybe the news cycle right is kind of kind of a joke because you know who remembers you know what happened four years ago in Egypt right I mean obviously the people in Egypt do but what I'm saying is you know at a certain point where is do, here's what I'm getting at do you th what do you think about news media and mass media coverage of all this stuff. I mean, isn't it also just basically a big theatrical joke? Yeah, it's total propaganda. I mean, I, I often find people who consider themselves informed, who watch CNN all day, they've got Fox on, on TV or MSNBC, and, you know, they, they're news junkies. And right. You can also talk to somebody on the street who just doesn't watch news. They're just not interested in the news. And yet, despite the fact they're obsessed with you know sports or or some other television shows. They've got propaganda coming from that. They seem to be more well informed about world affairs by not knowing anything <laughs> than the people who watch the actual news shows. Right. Uh, you know, at least they're starting from kind of a neutral standpoint where they don't know what's going on. Versus uh, you know versus being told that you know Assad is the new Hitler and he's got concentration camps across the world and motivating them to war. So, um, yeah, I don't pay attention really to the to the mainstream media because it's all a joke. Generally speaking, a good rule of thumb is if you see a story on the mainstream, you can generally assume that the other, uh, the opposite of that is right. true. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I remember uh, some years ago. Um, I mean, I don't I don't take WikiLeaks seriously, but there was a uh, a leaked um, a leaked document from WikiLeaks that was. Um, I, I don't even hardly remember the name of it, but it was something to do with uh, military propaganda in in uh, insurgent areas in foreign countries, and, and and this manual gave you know the most ridiculously detailed uh, plans and minutia on how to construct the news cycle for the nation that you've conquered, right? So <laughs> every aspect of the American news, right, was actually in this military psyop 
you know, manual about setting up, uh, you know, propaganda in foreign countries. Now that won't, that won't come as, as knowledge to you, but when you when you think about that, I mean, that's a pretty profound uh, revelation that, that uh, the news media as a whole is basically structured along, um, you know, decades of uh, psychological warfare and, uh, you know, propaganda, PR, Bernays, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. It's, it's structured to sell whatever the entity wants to sell, right? So it has nothing to do with what's objective with the case. In fact, it's completely a war on that. And I think that that all that we've seen, especially in the last few years, you know, the the the, the news cycle has just gotten completely ridiculous. Yeah, and you know, all of it is carefully designed by people who very very much uh, understand human psychology, right. you know, and, and and marketing. And of course, we know that news agencies are are really they basically are propaganda agencies and they're infiltrated not infiltrated i guess but controlled by intelligence agencies i mean right. you've got things like uh, operation mockingbird but that's only the tip of the iceberg i mean intelligence agents cia agents are embedded in every major national uh, media outlet and some of the smaller ones as well absolutely and you've got things even from the the screens in the background and the ticker tape and the tone of the voice and the uh, you know the the way the voice lands whenever they're giving a report, as if to give you a conclusion at the end. All of that is carefully constructed to make you believe something that is not true. Yeah, and and, that, and that's exactly what that manual got into. I mean, it was it was that detailed. It was you know down to you know how the the you know the the, the news guy needs to dress, how the tie needs to be, how the how the set needs to look. It has to be at a certain angle. The camera needs to be so far away. I mean, it was that detailed. Yeah, and, and I do share your uh, you know criticism of WikiLeaks too. I mean, I, I'm sure a lot of those leaks are, are real and true. But have you noticed that WikiLeaks tends to release uh, documents that are unfavorable to whatever country the United States wants to attack next? Absolutely. Yeah, it was it was pretty uh, pretty quickly evident that uh, you know the WikiLeaks was some sort of uh, you know Pentagon private type of operation. Also because uh, you know. Where did it go? You know, it, suddenly it disappears, and then what does the the mainstream media promote? Well, along comes Snowden, uh, yeah. and I don't I don't mean to get into a debate about Snowden. I have my own opinions on that, but but uh, what we what we see is a clear pattern of you know, like you said, you know, whatever you you see mainstream media you know touting, trumpeting, vomiting in your face twenty four seven, probably is is the opposite is true. Yeah, I mean, you can even look just on the Syrian situation. We've got a number of examples, right? Remember, the first one was Gay Girl in Damascus. I'm sure you remember that. I mean, <laughs> yeah. NPR was all over that because it, you know, it, it really, it really spoke to right. their audience. And oh, so liberal, so oppre <laughs> so oppressed. Yeah, so many, so many minorities embedded in one person. And you know what's funny is that it wasn't a gay girl; it was an older it was, it was guy. A, it was a dude, guy. right? Some yeah. old dude. <laughs> he was in the UK. And uh, yes, it was fake. And then you had uh, Syrian, Syrian Danny, right? Yeah, and he was caught, you know, staging chaos in the background to make it look like he was a victim and and all of that uh, garbage. And then we had uh, recently the Syria boy, you know, the little kid that you know, the shooting thing, yeah, yeah, which was filmed in Malta by a Norwegian film crew. Yep. And we even had a report early on 
in the Syrian uh, destabilization, where Ben Rhodes was allegedly the uh, you know the mastermind of this. But the idea was to film to to go out in uh, I think was it uh, Kuwait or Qatar, one of these one of these countries, and create a film set out there and you know, show masses of people celebrating Assad's fall, show that Assad was killed, and film generals being hung and that sort of thing, and then uh, broadcast it, overtake the broadcast signals of the Syrian television and broadcast this out on the television sets of Syrian people so they could look around and see that they had been defeated. Well, all of it would have been an elaborate film set, right? This would have been right, right. you know, Hollywood-style propaganda and then blasted onto the television screens. But put yourself into the shoes of an average Syrian who turns on the TV and now you see that your top general is being hung by his neck on the city square and you can see it for yourself, right? Now, well, now you're, you're demoralized. The, that never took shape because of you know, the, the, the way that the Syrian uh, media was configured that it wouldn't allow that to happen. The Assad saw that coming and, and put a stop to it. But it did happen in Libya. And they did, uh, they had the Green Square where all these people were celebrating in the Green Square. And it was the fall of Gaddafi. But Gaddafi hadn't fallen yet, and that wasn't the Green Square. It was in uh, Qatar. Yeah, I remember that, right? Did, uh, yeah. Yeah, did, didn't the BBC report on that too or, or something? Uh, I remember there were clear uh, BBC uh, fakeries going on with Libya, but... but uh, Yeah, it was all over. Right. And if you just imagine that they have the capabilities to do that, and the overwhelming majority of people aren't even going to consider the fact that it could be fake, especially if they see it, you gotta you got to wonder what else are they doing. And Absolutely. You know, and so... I just don't pay any attention to them, really. I mean, obviously, I have to in order to understand what's what's going on. What, what, what yeah, what, what the establishment's pushing, exactly. They have no credibility in my eyes. No, no, no. I mean, that is, um, you know, we get cynical and we think, well, uh, you know, there's no way to stop this. Uh, but but it's interesting that when you read the establishment itself, they discuss, and, and you can find plenty of places where they discuss, you know the the fear that people might wake up to this. In other words, if it was all cynical and impossible, if we should be cynical and and, and have a, a defeatist attitude, uh, why why are they so worried about it? In other words, the fact that it requires so much propaganda, so much deception, you know, that alone I think speaks to the fact that uh, if the threat wasn't real, then they wouldn't be so concerned with it. Yeah, well, when you have billions of people that you're trying to control, the the idea that w they could sniff it out one day and realize that this very small minority of people have been pulling the wool over their eyes for their entire life, I would be kind of worried about that too. You know, I wouldn't really want them to figure out, um, you know, what was going on, or even, you know, begin to discover the fact that maybe that we even exist because that you know they we vastly outnumber them. So. Well, it's like, uh, it, you know, it's like uh, Bertrand Russell, you know, he talks about this in in his works. He says, you know, the public's got to be dumbed down, but but mainly because we, we have to beware. <laughs> we have to we have to attack, you know, the most intelligent among them. We have to dumb them down uh, because they're the ones that are going to go against our system. And if we don't attack them, our system won't work. Yeah, and in fact, uh, Charles Galton Darwin said the same thing, you know. He said that we have to uh, remove any semblance of, of you know, the, the natural 
the natural man, his the, the man's wild capabilities. The wild man, we, yeah. Yeah, but we the elite. We will be the wild men. Right, <laughs> right. Exactly. Now, let's transition into, uh, you've written a book on Codex Alimentarius and w that uh, attack on... Uh, you know, human nature, human vitality, uh, you know, the, the, the soul, the psyche, rationality that we possess. Let's talk about that. How, how, does, uh, how does the work that you've done with, um, you know, health and uh, the attack on the right to, you know, have vitamins and, and nutrients, how does that fit into this whole agenda? Well, I mean, obviously, the the idea of keeping someone in in a situation where their their body is not functioning properly and how that funs, uh, you know, affects a person's critical faculties and how it affects their ability to resist or you just basically survive in general is a very important uh, concept. The, the Codex Alimentarius is the name of an organization. It's a UN-based organization, and it's created uh, in 1964 under the Food and Agricultural organization and the idea is to harmonize world food laws um, in order to you know under the guise of making trade more uh, more easily accessible and making it you know well harmonized obviously so the world trade organization has a lot to do with this and and so do uh, a number of other organizations but the the idea if you look at what's happening in terms of their standards especially with nutritional supplements. You look at some of the, um, the organizations that, that did the testing and determined the adequate level of nutrition, and it is vastly below even, you know, the base level of nutrition that, right. you know, the, the back of the supplement box tells you, right, your you know, average daily diet. It's funny you say that because I have a friend who, who got in really, really bad health. He had, he had a drinking problem for a long time and he ended up in Vanderbilt uh, over this and uh, turns out he had a severe vitamin D deficiency and the prescription they gave him was some crazy amount like something like you know 50,000 you know whatever grams of, of milligram microgram I don't know what it is but you know this this crazy amount of vitamin D and you know we were discussing this after he, he got back and I'm, and I'm, I'm sitting here thinking well you know, we've always been told that, you know, you only need this this small one. You know, what's listed on the label says 100% vitamin C daily, right? <laughs> and and we've always been told, well, you know, anything more than that is a is a waste, and you're just gonna you know piss it out or whatever. But I'm sitting here thinking, well, here's Vanderbilt, you know, prescribing a guy, you know, this massive dose of of vitamin D. Which proves that you know they wouldn't be doing that unless obviously the body could handle or required more. Yeah, and you know what's funny about that? Two things. First is the uh, the average daily diet requirements. The you know the one hundred percent of vitamin C or whatever. All of that is is basically the level at which you won't catch rickets. You know, so it's <laughs> it's not the level of optimum health. It's the level of minimum health. You need this amount of vitamin C in, of vitamin C in order to not have rickets or in order to not have vitamin C deficiency. So it's subsistence level, not optimum level. So right. you go much higher above that. Of course, a lot of these supplements are just absolute uh, garbage anyway because they're synthetic. And you right. have to be even careful about that and find out which ones that are, you know, the, the natural organic ones and they actually can benefit you. But I just buy organic Flintstones vitamins. That's all I take. Yeah. I take, um, about, I take about 50 a day. 
I'm being the, stupid, but <laughs> the um, the idea of having a population that is malnourished. I mean, you can go back to the days of of serfdom and see the you know the same situation. You can see that in any in any country where the people who who work the land and who are essentially oppressed by an oligarchy are not given the amount of food that they that they need. It's either not uh, clean right. food or it's not enough food or it's one specific type of food. Well, right? think about uh, think about warfare. I mean, I, I read um, Machiavelli's Art of War uh, not too long ago. Uh, you know, everybody knows about Sun Tzu's, but Machiavelli has an interesting one too where he talks at length about siege warfare. And obviously, a crucial aspect of siege warfare is shutting off and or poisoning and or wrecking uh the food supply of your of your enemy yeah and if you look at you know again i go back to the days of serfdom and and that that sort of thing we we have people who are on a restricted diet the type of food that they have is while it's clean while it's all organic good food you know, if you're only eating carrots, then that's that's not right. Peasants can have potatoes, but then uh, you know, like like England, you know, having these crazy laws of you know, you either can't hunt or you can only hunt one day, or you know, something ridiculous like that. Yeah, and then we come forward to today where you see, you know, there's this misconception of people who are obese being overnourished, and there's really nothing that you know, there, there is no such thing as overnourishment, right? Actually, a, a really obese person is actually malnourished. Just right. because they eat a lot of food doesn't mean that they're overnourished. That food, it's, it could scarcely be called food. It's uh, mostly just chemical garbage. And today, while there may be enough food, in the West at least, um, the type of food is not only bad food, is not only deficient in minerals and nutrients, but it's actually harmful, like genetically modified organisms right. and so forth that the uh, Codex Alimentarius has no problem with. But uh, these types of food, which have been shown to cause cancer, despite what Neil deGrasse Tyson and all the hipster scientists or, or hipster fans are, are saying, has been shown to cause cancer and a number of other health issues as well. Yeah, he. I, I believe he's a... Uh He's a paid establishment uh, front man um, who who really exists just to promote um, establishment science, which ultimately is scientism. It's not not really science. So, yeah, he, yeah. he's like a he's like a car salesman, and he wears those. He wears his like he's a he's, he dresses like a bad car salesman. He's got these like nineteen eighty eight vests that he wears, and <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he's a bad car salesman for science. What's funny about that? You know, it, it's even talked about. Um, the, uh, how many of these scientists throughout, especially the last century, have been promoted, right? Whether you had, uh, yes. you know, Darwin or even Einstein as, as geniuses, we always have these geniuses that are presented to us as, as superstars of right. science or technology. And actually, they're not, maybe they might be intelligent people, but they're not the geniuses that we think they are. Many of them get that information, uh, you know, even Isaac Newton, they uh, get this I information agree. from right. other people. And intelligence agents, people that actually understand this stuff. Bill Gates, for instance. And um, yeah, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a great lecture by Tarpley, uh, and I want to not say I agree with everything Tarpley says, but there's a great lecture by Tarpley where he talks about the Venetian network of Paolo, Paolo, Paolo Sarpi and all these different uh, you know Medici uh, uh, crime family bankers that were involved in the promotion of Newton. And that struck a chord with me because as a philosophy uh, guy, 
studying philosophy, you know, I, I was um, always into metaphysics, and I don't mean that in the New Agey way, I mean in the classical sense of the study of the branch of philosophy called metaphysics. Uh, and that was dropped, you know, by the time of uh, the, uh, the Enlightenment, Renaissance, uh, scientific revolution, metaphysics is tossed away. But in the Royal Society and these different groups, there's a clear pattern of continuing a tradition of genuine metaphysics. And meanwhile, feeding everyone else pop science people like Newton. And like you said, I'm not saying Newton wasn't intelligent, but, um, you know, there's a clear different uh, working paradigm that people in the establishment at the top are working on that the rest of the the, the populace is is fed kind of junk stuff yeah and it's it's funny because we we've, we've now had this you know culture in 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 the west where it's become trendy to be a nerd and trendy to obsess over quote unquote science right, right? it's what you refer to as scientism and i think this is a good a good name for it. Um, and so you're given these superstars and everything, you know, boils down to uh, the question of science. Is it science, right? With it, for instance, the Neil deGrasse Tyson issue. Like, if you came out and said that you think genetically modified foods cause uh, cancer, then they would they would look at you and say, well, you know, you don't have a you know a, a degree in that, so I have to go with the scientists. Well, Tyson is, I think, a physicist not a geneticist, and right. you can uh, look at David Suzuki, and I'm not a fan of him because he wants to reduce the population and thinks we're all scum and stuff too, but uh, he actually said that people are crazy if they think that genetically modified foods are safe. So my hipster scientist is better than your hipster scientist right. on this issue. Yeah, so I would just like people to, to take a look at that for what it is. Yeah, the fallacy of authority, uh, you know, I'll just cite, the, you know, which is, by the way, not scientific, simply <laughs> simply referring right. to, you know, that's actually a logical fallacy. But, uh, you know, I was doing some, I wrote two articles criticizing uh, Tyson. And um, in, the, in the course of that, I came across his uh, CV. And he's got a, a book coming out. He's a co-author of a book coming out that actually is tied into um, military uh, psychological warfare, like special warfare type stuff. So uh, that, to me, suggests a little bit of shadiness on his part. Um, you know, I don't have any direct proof. I don't know what his, uh, you know, advanced military uh, tactics uh, uh, section of the book is going to be because I don't think the book's out yet. But uh, that suggests that he, you know, might have uh, alternate uh, uh, funding and, and, and alternate interests. Well, I'm sure he does, and, you know, as we just said, you know, many of these scientists who are put out there, I mean, you, you talk to people, you know, some of the the interviews and writings surrounding Einstein, and the yeah. people would refer to Einstein and say, well, he wasn't much of a scientist, but he was a great politician. And, you know, for whatever he did, and however intelligent he may have been, he was used more as a speaker and, and more as a pusher of certain concepts than he was of actually developing them yeah I've, I've, I've read his essay on socialism so he yeah he exi he basically existed uh, to you know I'm not saying he didn't have scientific discoveries but he existed to promote socialism and he worked on you know the uh, the, the atomic uh, well, Manhattan project but um, you know there's other aspects of the the hidden um, science that I'm talking about uh, where you know he kind of 
thrust away things like uh, the unified field theory and um, Kaluza-Klein models of electromagnetism, ether, things like that, uh, that kind of went underground. So here, here Einstein's put forward as the standard, basically. Meanwhile, military-industrial complex is working with all this Tesla technology to build, you know, geoengineering platforms to build uh, systems related to, you know, electromagnetic warfare, all, all this crazy, crazy Tesla stuff, you know, is really going on while you have this facade of, of uh, you know, pop science. Yeah, and that's, that's been used for years in that way. It's, it's, Tesla was, you know, most likely one of the, the few that actually really produced many of the things that, uh, you know, that that he said he did or that people think he did. And, and of course, we see that he died penniless. Of course, right. Tesla himself was a eugenicist uh, or believed in eugenics. So. Yeah, and he got into some weird uh, theosophy and things like that towards the latter latter period. But, um, you know, again, I think it just speaks to uh, uh, basically a, a dual nature to all this stuff, right? So in health, you know, you have CNN has its health moment or, you know, the Guardian health section, right? Don't eat meat. Just eat, you know, just eat... Uh, Eating meat kills you, and then of course you'll notice that the meat that everyone was eating was like you know hormone-fed meat and possibly genetically modified too. So what I'm getting at is is that you start to see a pattern that across the board, you know, every area there's a true area and then a false area, and what everybody's sold is this sort of full spectrum inverted version, this this fake version, fake environmentalism, fake food fake nutrition, fake education, fake science, and so forth. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good assessment of it because, you know, whether it's your your heroes who, that, that are led out there to, um, you know, to, to, to stand as the opposition movement, whether it's political parties and or, or underground movements to, to some degree, or whether it's, as you said, like fake environmentalism or, uh, you know, these... You know, humanitarian bombers. That's another example of it, mm -hmm. right? Where you have these people who who are concerned for people overseas, but it still ends up promoting bombing, for instance. And it goes in so many different levels. There's levels of it, right? Whether it's political parties, you have the opposition candidate, or then you have the you know the the the, the, the third parties, you know, the the Greens versus the Libertarians. Right. And it's the same thing, and then you can go further out from there. Whether it's uh, political movements or uh, you know Occupy versus Tea Party, or you can move even further out, and then you you find that there are so many different little divisions, and little little uh, landmines out there for you, and the, the little traps to catch you. And sometimes it seems daunting, but sometimes also when you step back and realize what it actually is, it's a lot easier to uh, to avoid the propaganda because when you can take a look at the bigger picture and right. just let your actual real conscious mind look at something and use what's termed common sense <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. as an insult but uh what else do you call it you know your natural instincts your intuition let that guide you you'll you'll be a lot lot better off and it's a lot easier to counteract that propaganda when you do it that way all right well we're coming upon an hour and uh, i know you're a busy guy i don't want to keep you too long is there any uh anything we can look forward to that you're working on coming up soon well, right now I'm just sticking with the articles. I'm, you know, I'm going to continue to follow the Syrian situation and do a few other things uh, as well. The articles aren't just about Syria. They're about a lot of other 
issues as well. And, you know, just keep checking the website, brandonturboville.com. I do have a lecture scheduled for December the 11th in a small town called Mullins, South Carolina, where I'm going to be uh, giving a lecture on the Syrian situation. So people can find the details about that on my website, too. All right. And uh, and you do also uh, regularly uh, post uh, at Activist Post. So uh, listeners can check his stuff out there. And Brandon, I want to thank you. And um, I'm sure as things develop, we will check back in with you in the near future. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. I've enjoyed it. All right. Thank you. something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details